0: All right. Well, welcome, everyone, to the latest installment of Robert Rosenfeld's Begin Again series. We're really excited to um, have a second uh, chapter, installment. How do you want to, what do you want to call this, Rob? Installment <laughs> is nice. I like that. <laughs> okay, good. So this, uh, this mini-series, this installment is called Religious Zionism and Its Discontents, the Thought and History of Religious Approaches to the Modern State. So um, we're very excited to launch this and kick it off and learn more about all of that. So Rabbi, take it away. Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, I'm just going to spotlight myself. Um, there is a line in the Zohar, Akadash. Thanks, Judith, and uh, thanks to the uh, to CC for helping to spearhead this. I'm really, really excited about this series, and I want to thank everybody uh, for coming uh, on such short notice uh, to, uh, to join this. Um, but we will uh, be posting all... Um, We'll be posting all installments of this. It's on the CCE's YouTube page. Uh, Rabbi chencher uh, does that. And um, also, we're like I said before, all materials that I've gathered for this. And there is going to be a considerable amount of material. Uh, I'll be posting that uh, in some uh, shape or form from the school that you'll be able to avail yourselves of uh, any further study that you'd like to do. Um, the Zohar kadosh, the foundational Jewish mystical text, has a description of the way that people think about God. And it quotes, uh, it's really a verse from Mishle, but it might be more familiar to you from Eshed Chayil, the song traditionally sung uh, by Jewish husbands to their wives on Friday night. It says, Noda Basha'arim ba'ala. Uh, Noda Basharim Bala, her, her husband is known, is known in the gates. And the Zohar Kadosh, uh, in a homiletical riff on this, says, Noda Basharim ba'ala. Sha'arim comes from the word, Everyone according to their own understanding. Shi'ur, hash'ara, is like a word for their own estimation, for their own understanding. What does that mean, uh, that somebody's own estimation? It means that uh, there's a statement attributed to a famous atheist, but I think we can sanctify it uh, for for our purposes, which is uh, a million different gods for a million different people that means really is that a concept as difficult to grasp for our minds, a concept as profound as God uh, has of necessity, people are different. There's going to be a million different ways in which we understand uh, that profound concept. Of course, uh, there's still concrete ironclad things that we need to grasp onto, that we need to agree upon uh, because words have meaning and definitions are important. But I like to think of this Zohar Everyone according to their own understanding and reasoning when we talk about Zionism. Zionism is a very powerful uh, and a very big word. Um, in certain quarters nowadays, Zionism is a dirty word, Khalila. Uh, in other quarters, Zionism is a word for an overthrow of God, uh, for an attack i God. And in some quarters, Zionism, as we'll see, is nothing less than the harbinger of redemption, than the end of all human history and the alleviation of, of all competition, of all struggle and strife and difficulty and pain and suffering in the world. Um, it is a big, difficult word. Now, how can I make that word more difficult? How can I make that word more problematic? What if I tack on the word religion before that? That would, that would do a number on the concept of Zionism. And that's exactly what we're going to seek to tackle uh, in the next uh, three next rim, starting with tonight, which is essentially going to be a history of one of the most important ideas, whether you agree with it, and you are a, uh, you consider yourself a card carrying religious Zionist, or whether uh, you believe to the very fiber of your being that it is a satanic notion, and uh, I use that very specifically because there are indeed Jewish thinkers uh, who would say that Zionism is a, a, religious Zionism is nothing less than a satanic act, ma'ases satan. Whether you are vehemently against it or whether you're completely for it, uh, religious Zionism, the concept of Zionism, is something that cannot be ignored in the story of Jewish history in the last 200 years, especially in the last century. Uh, and it's one that we are still grappling with to this very day, seeking to define, seeking to understand, and uh, seeking, to, uh, seeking to know what the future holds for this very important concept. So I thought uh, in a Begin Again series, we started with an introduction to the Talmud in the last series, uh, it's really important to go back to first things. We talk about our school, uh, by Cultural Hebrew Academy. We talk about our, our synagogues in the area as being Zionist institutions, believing in Medina Yisrael. And uh, we say uh, the Tefillah Lishlom HaMedina, and we say in the Tefillah LeShlom HaMedina the prayer for the welfare of the state of Israel, Reshit Ki the beginning of the flowering of redemption. And it's important, right? Just as the unexamined life is uh, not worth living, a certain philosopher once said. I believe in unexamined Zionism. Uh, spill my cards, I am indeed a Zionist and a religious Zionist, I hope. Um, but it, in unexamined Zionisms, I think one, uh, hopefully it's it's worth still having, but I think that's Zionism bereft of the meaning with which the concept uh, must contain, especially in the face of such opposition nowadays. So that is a short introduction. And uh, hopefully through the Ashiram, uh, we'll walk away with a far deeper, more nuanced, more profound understanding of what it means to call ourselves religious Zionists. And if you don't call yourself religious Zionists, at least understanding that which it is uh, that you are opposed to. Um, I'll tell you what I don't seek to be doing in the rest of the classes, which is addressing Zionism and Zionist history from a strictly political and secular perspective. There are a great many scholars uh, and uh, thinkers who could do a much better job. People can frankly do a way better job than me uh, on the religious side of things, but I intend to narrow our focus onto the religious side of things. So what I'm gonna go ahead and do right now is share a screen and get us underway. And, um, And I really, I just wanna say again, thank you all so much. For coming so religious Zionism and its discontents, um, and I'm channeling uh, you know Freud with that title, um, civilizations' discontents, a great book that I could recommend. Um, so session one is theory and beginnings, growth and opposition. So we're going to start off with a picture, and there's going to be a lot of pictures over here, and you can notice in the background there seem to be um, seem to be a bunch of barns. In the background, it's black and white. You could tell that it's old. And you see an odd mix. And I thought that this was such a wonderful picture to start off with for a number of reasons. You could see an odd mix over here of... Uh, younger-looking chavra people representing, you know, that chalutz, that pioneer look, albeit uh, in a somewhat religious format. You could see a woman is wearing a tichel over here. There's young children. There's kippah over here where this young child is. And then you see something representing what you might call or term the old guard. Uh, you see rabbis wearing uh, all manner of religious garb, holding sifrei Torah, coming out of one building while the barns and the agricultural structures are in the background. And I thought, what a beautiful picture to summarize what is going to be a central tenet of religious Zionism, which is settling the land and holding on at the same time, in the other hand, to the Torah and to Jewish tradition, which is being taken through centuries, millennia old galut from the last time that the Jewish people dwelled on the land of Israel. Now this specific picture, uh, I didn't make a typo over here on the bottom. That's not Chabad, but Bahad uh, Bahad is Brit Chalutzim Datiim, which was one of the or uh, very early religious Zionist organizations. Most of them youth movements, as all revolutionary movements uh, usually not all, but usually are. And these are Chalutzim in the background. Pretty much everybody here is a Chalutz in the Hachnasat Sefer Torah in Rodgas in Petach Tikva, 1936. Now, of course, 1936 on the uh, just in Europe. In another continent is the harbinger of an incredibly dark time for the Jewish people and um, their co-religionists in the land of Israel are, are, are going through the first steps of what is going to be an incredibly redemptive and bright time in Jewish history. Now, Kfutzat Rodgas is a very interesting one. It was started by, like we said, Brit Chalutzim Simdatim, which was a German Jewish group. Uh, they were also known as Kfutsat Yavne. You might be familiar with their pickles or olives nowadays, um, or you may have heard of uh, Kibbutz Yavne, where the Yeshiva Kerem Yavne is. Their stated goal was to learn Torah, and there's some beautiful images of them learning Torah together and to work the land. And it was uh, originally, uh, they came over in 1929 from Germany, and they settled in Rodgas, which was a neighborhood that was right next to Petar Tikva. Now, Petar Tikva is really important because Petar Tikva founded a little bit earlier. Petach Tikva is the first modern settlement in what was then called Ottoman Southern Syria. Remember, the British mandate hasn't even started yet. Uh, so this is really, um, this Settlement was started before the British even made it uh, to what was then called Palestine. That was started in 1878. Now, Petach Tikva was famously called Eim HaMoshavot, the mother of all the Moshavot, because it was the opening of hope, as its name says, Petach Tikva and was the first modern agricultural sediment. And this picture, I think, is emblematic of so much that we're going to be talking about. And there's so many pictures that we could choose. But the carrying of the Torah with the agricultural accoutrements in the background, the young and the old coming together, the children here, and the smiles. And I would almost see uh, on, on people's faces, if you could even see there's a smile and also a bit of trepidation and a bit of looking towards the future that I think religious Zionism uh, really represents, at least in, in my estimation and imagination. Uh, What kind of responses are we going to see to religious Zionism throughout these Shireim? Now, you you know the joke that, you know, um, you could have, uh, how does it go, one Jew, two opinions or uh, two Jews, three opinions. So religious Zionism being what what we would call a hot-button issue, an incredibly fraught issue um, in religious terms. It aroused intense opposition, like we said, and intense support. And uh, there's really... Thank God there is an in between, there is a variety. So we find not anti Zionism and Zionism as a binary. But what we actually see is a spectrum of responses throughout rabbinic and Jewish literature. And I want to go through some of the responses just to whet your appetite for some of the Jewish thought that we're going to see over here. Uh, so we're going to see people who are going to term the founding of the state of Israel and the religious support for the state of Israel as nothing less than a satanic act, a ma'aseh satan. In fact, when when asked, and I'm not going to spill the names of which thinkers uh, hold these opinions and this is just meant as an introductory piece but when asked you know, how do we make sense for example of the startling military victories of the uh, nascent state of Israel in 1948 and then again in 1967 how, how could you look at that as anything less than the hand of God it's a victory the response is, is that it is a masset satan that it is a satanic act it was the satan of course it was supernatural it just wasn't the good side that was making it happen and then there's less fierce anti-Zionist responses uh, that it is an anti-Jewish state, uh, that if you can imagine the approaches is, is that uh, while there are outer trappings of Zionism, you know, Star of David and uh, the Kotel and uh, all these trappings of uh, nice only in Israel Jewish stuff, in actuality, the state itself and its very existence is anti-Jewish. Uh, and uh, indeed it endangers the diaspora. Uh, There is a secular counterpart of this that we find in modern anti-Zionism, which is a kind of uh, extreme diasporism. You'll see this in some quarters with uh, an attempt at the revival of modern Yiddishism. Uh, You'll find this in uh, notions that the state of Israel uh, actively hurts, and damages uh, Jews that are living outside of it. Um, So that tracks with anti-Jewish state uh, that the state of Israel, for example, Example is a great chilul Hashem, a desecration of God's name, and then there's people who contend they'll call it the regime of Israel. They will refer to it in in euphemism, much like, for example, the um, the the, um, what's it called, the Arab Congress, uh, the the uh, the Arab League. Uh, calls it, uh, they refuse to recognize the name of Israel. Nowadays, things have changed a lot in the political realm in the Middle East, but uh, you would refer to it as the Zionist entity. So you'll find uh, Jewish thinkers referring to it in the same way. Then we start to approach the neutral, non-Zionism, not anti, not for Zionism, but it's a state ruled by the Jews. It contains zero religious significance whatsoever, or notions of the state of the Jews. All these, by the way, are quotes from Jewish thinkers that we'll encounter. And then we start to go towards uh, what might be a little bit more familiar, perhaps, the state of the Jewish people. Uh, That is something that approximates a non-Messianic Zionism. Uh, That uh, Zionism and the state of Israel are, are, uh, of course, positive developments, but contains zero messianic energy, zero redemptive energy. It doesn't mean anything in terms of when the Messiah is going to come. The the state is the same, uh, more or less, as us living in America. And then we start to find Zionist responses. The state of Knesset Israel there is an inherent religious quality to it. And then we find, for example, the language of Rav Cook in one specific letter, where Rav Cook refers to the state of Israel or to be. Rav Cook died in 1935, before the founding of the state of Israel by uh, by a little, by more than a decade, by 13 years. Uh, Rav Cook called it the pedestal of God's throne in this world, that God dwells in heaven and God's main. Locus of action and in moving the wheels of history is going to be happening and unfolding in in the land of Israel. And then finally, we have responses that see almost an active messianic development in the state of Israel. Uh, You'll find people, for example, uh, what we might call Mamlachtim, which is a language for people, for example, who might say that littering in the state of Israel is a biblical violation. Uh, Believe it or not, I have a uh, safer over here. If you'll excuse me for a moment. Um, Mitzvat, I don't have these shells for nothing. Here's a Sefer called Mitzvat Haaretz Khatan. Otsar Halachot Yeshuv Eretz Israel. It is a collection of laws on the settlement of the state of Israel, and in the front there is a Haskama. There is a rabbinic approbation from the late Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu, and Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu writes, uh, referring to a specific comment of the author, that it is possible that if we would believe that the state of Israel is indeed a divine state, then littering uh, would be a a violation, a desecration of God's name. Or you'll find people who say that jaywalking is, uh, you know, because you're violating the laws of the state and the state is the representative of God and the unfolding of redemption, that something as simple as jaywalking is a Torah violation. So uh, that's just some of the ramifications of these kinds of approaches and these kinds of thoughts. And what you see on this spectrum is that nobody could ignore it. It was so big, and it was such a massive development that either you are completely against, and I think the people that fall into these categories, it's almost like thou doth protest too much, and then on the other end of the spectrum, it is an intoxicating notion and everything that is encapsulated by the Jewish people returning to the state of Israel requires some sort of response and whatever end of the spectrum it is, you cannot avoid it. So let's do a little bit of history and, uh, and hopefully we will uh, be able to get to some Torah quite soon. But let's start with uh, a little bit of how we got here. So um, so we have in 1700 Rabbi Judah HaChasid. Uh, leads 1,500 people to the land of Israel on, on Aliyah. Now, I didn't make a mistake here. There is an earlier Rabbi Yehuda HaChasid from the 13th century who was a leader of the German Pietists, which was a mystical group, uh, wrote the Sefer HaChasidim. This is another Judah HaChasid. This Judah HaChasid leads in 1700s. I cannot describe to you how difficult it is to have made Aliyah at the time. We know, for example, that Rabbi Nachman of Breslov made a trip to the land of Israel in 1798, and it took him about two months to make it to the land of Israel from Ukraine. Uh, he was—he uh, nearly lost his life a few times along the way, and on the way back, the travel to the land of Israel from Europe at the time was incredibly fraught, incredibly difficult. Um, Rabbi Yehuda Chassid's group of people that came along with him, um, unfortunately, nearly half of them perished along the way to the land of Israel. They did make it to the land of Israel. Uh, they they barely survived their first time there. Um, but one of the edifices of their of their settlement to the land of Israel still exists nowadays. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna actually show you. Um, I'm gonna show you a picture of it right now. Um, let me see if I could bring it up for you, uh, because many of you have probably seen. Um, You've probably seen this. Here we go. Let me show you this because one of the remnants of their trip to the land of Israel still exists nowadays. We call it Beit Knesset um, it, This is the rebuilt Beit Knesset HaChurva. It's in the old city of Yerushalayim, uh, right across from my yeshiva from Yeshivat HaKotel. This arch over here was one of the original arches from it. I wonder if they have a picture of what it looked like beforehand. It's quite stunning nowadays. Uh, it is the, uh, one of the tallest religious buildings. And this building was established. It was a synagogue that was established. Uh, here it was destroyed by the Jordanians in 1948. This is what it looked like beforehand. This is what I remember it. The only thing that was left was this arch. And that was a synagogue that was established by Rabbi Yehuda and his followers uh, when they when they came to the land of Israel. And that aliyah was uh, unfortunately... Um, fraught with tremendous suffering and tremendous tremendous problems. Uh, However, uh, it was representative of one of the first efforts and a sign really of what people were willing to do in order to make it to the land of Israel. Let's move along a little bit. Um, There's an article if you want to read in Commentary Magazine, it's behind a paywall now, in, in, uh, of August 1948. I give a drush on this in Lincoln Square Synagogue. Uh, it's called Cedars of Lebanon, and it is a diary, the recollections of one Rav Gedalia of Siamatich, who is a follower of Yehuda Hasid, uh, who describes how he passed away in, uh, in the second year that they had been there, and he describes uh, their sufferings. And the next major aliyah to the land of Israel at the time is in 1777. Uh, little About 75 years later, Rav Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk, he moves with his followers to Tzifat, to The Holy city of Tzfat in the north of Israel, and later on they 're forced to move to Tveria. Uh, there are many remnants of their settlement. Remenach Mendel Vitebsk is an extremely important character in Jewish history. He is, of course the main Talmud, the main student of the main student of the bal Shemtov uh, he 's a Talmud of the Magad Gal, the Magad of Mezrich, and he brings a group of followers to Israel again, under great suffering and great duress. It is this community. Uh, uh, along with sort of Avram Kalisker, another great early Hasidic leader that Rabbi Nachman links up to uh, when he makes a travel about 20 years later to the land of Israel. Um, I'll, I'll just say, Rabbi Menachem Endel Vitebsk is really important because um, they suffered through, I'm sorry that I keep sharing, but I love seeing everybody. They suffered through a terrible cholera outbreak. Um, I believe it was in the 1780s. I don't know exactly what, what year. And in the Sefer Pri Haaretz, which is a collection of the Torahs of Rabbanacha Mendelevitevsk, in the back there are a number of letters. And, uh, if you, uh, feel free to reach out to me. I'll show you the letter. This is just parenthetical. It is, uh, this is a ridiculous thing, actually. Um, just the way in which history rhymes. They have a cholera outbreak and they are forced to quarantine. And he, we have the letter extent from Rabbanacha Mendelevitevsk and he writes, and, and get this. He says it was, it was around Purim time. He says it was Shushan Purim. It was Shushan in 1780-something that they were forced, he says, I am in quarantine. And they were forced to go inside their homes in Tiveria in, in, in late 18th century Israel. And he writes that eventually we started davening in our courtyards. We held a quorum for prayer in our courtyards. Get this. And he says, and, and Baruch Hashem, after Pesach, after Shavuos time, we were able to start coming out. Now, I, I mean, I don't know. You could do with that what you want. But it's a remarkable letter. It is extant. If I was a better teacher, I would have had it ready to show you, although it is a total side point uh, to our purposes right now for the discussion history of religious Zionism Except for the fact that you can understand a little bit of the suffering and the sacrifices that were made by these leaders, by these rabbinic leaders and their communities in the settlement of the land of Israel. It is, uh, it is inescapable and, and unavoidable that their settlement of the land of Israel had a decidedly messianic uh, undertone, of course, the, the Rebbe of the Rebbe of the Pre-Tzaddik, uh, the Balshemtov. one of the only extant writings that we have is that the Balshemtov has an explicitly messianic text, the Gerit Habesh, the letter of the Balshemtov, talking about the fact that when Chasidut, when his teachings are expressed, when they are expressed in public and spread, that will be uh, the harbinger of the messianic redemption. Now, it must have been an incredibly heady thing to bring that to the, uh, to the land of Israel. So that's, <laughs> That's Rebbe Nachah Mendel Vitevsk. Let's continue on in history. Uh, a little bit later, we have the first Purushim, who leave the city of Shklov for Jerusalem and Sfat. Now, I want to pause for a second and point out that leaving aside of Yehuda Chassid and his ill-fated Aliyah, what we have the first two religious Aliyot that go to the land of Israel, we have Hasidim, and then we have Mitnagdim, we have students of the Vilna Gon, The Aliyah, the Gaon's disciples, is also one that is explicitly messianic. They are going to Israel in order to bring the Messiah, in order to bring the Mashiach. And uh, Dr. Ari Morgenstern of the Hebrew University, he has a book that's published, a wonderful book that's published by Oxford University Press called Messianism, Hastening the Redemption, Messianism, and the Resettlement of the Land of Israel. And then he also has a book, a little bit more of a popular version of his doctoral dissertation, which is the Gaon of Vilna and his Messianic Vision. He calls this, the Gaon of Vilna dies in 1797, of course, um, at least in popular understanding, the great antagonist, of the Hasidic idea, but at least on this point, they agreed the importance of the settlement to the land of Israel, even at great personal risk and, and duress. And um, the followers of the Vilna Gon, they settle, and they eventually, they end up in Yerushalayim. They're called the Prushim. Prushim means that they are separatists, religious separatists, and uh, they establish communities that even uh, remnants of them remain uh, somewhat distinct and different to this very day. Dr. Morgenstern calls this the real first Aliyah, right? We're going to see that the, the actual first Aliyah is not going to happen uh, until nearly a century later, but he calls these, chas, these Hasidei HaGra, these uh, Lithuanian followers of the Gra, he calls this uh Shklov, also a Rabbenach he calls this the first real Aliyah. Um, we continue on a little bit in history. Uh, Lord Lindsay, we have a, uh, the role of England and the role of English philo-Semitism uh, in the establishment of the State of Israel, leading up really to Lord Balfour and his letter uh, to the Rothschild family in the Balfour Declaration of 1917, British philo-Semites play an important role in the expression of this idea gurgling beneath the surface of Jewish life. It is important to recognize that when you are largely poor and, uh, and, and, and uneducated and struggling to survive, Right, uh, that lower class. If you know the famous line in 1984 in George Orwell's novel, right, the three groups of people. Right? So you have the people, uh, you have, you know, he writes that there's the upper class and the upper class they're mainly concerned with staying in the upper class. Then you have the middle class and they're mainly concerned with supplanting the upper class. And then finally you have the lower class and lower class are too busy trying to survive to think about anything else. That was mostly, I would say, the lot of the Jews in the, uh, in the 17th and the 18th century. And there was not much that we could think about, but there really was gurgling underneath the surface, this yearning for Zion. It's starting to become expressed at this time. And uh and, and it was British Philo Semitism, I think, that started to give this expression. The upper class was the really these people were able to uh to give it expression. 1837, Lord Lindsay says, Many, I believe, entertain the idea that an actual curse rests on the soil of Palestine and may be startled therefore at the testimony I have borne to its actual richness. Proofs far more sufficient that the land still enjoys her Sabbaths and only waits for the return of her banished children, 1837, to burst once more into universal universal luxuriance, all that she ever was in the days of Solomon. That's his letters on Egypt, Edom, and the Holy Land. And finally, in 1839, we're going to return to him. We have one of the first rabbinic luminaries to express what we call uh, a proto-Zionist idea which is Rav Yehuda al-Kalai, is going to be the first rabbinic figure that we're going to encounter in just a few moments. And then in 1840, again, Lord palmerton to Lord ponsavi you know, these uh, British uh, aristocracy ambassadors to the Ottoman Empire, there exists at the present time among the Jews dispersed over Europe a strong notion that their time is approaching when their nation will return to Palestine. Remember, we're talking, we're talking nearly 50 years before Theodor Herzl publishes their Judenstadt. Uh, we're talking uh, in 1898. We are talking, of, of this undercurrent of the, of the average Jew who looks around at the trappings of his life in the shtetl or in the gola and says there's got to be something more than this. And, uh, and although it's inelocutable and inexpressible and ineffable, it's something that is starting to come up in the surface and we're going to see the first rabbinic texts, the first texts that marshal and grapple with the rabbinic arguments for and against Uh, being in the land of Israel. One of those texts is Darchei which we're going to come back to in a moment. It would be a manifest importance to the Sultan to encourage the Jews to return to settle in Palestine. And then we have Mishkinot Sha'ananim, is the first neighborhood of the new Yeshuv built outside the Jerusalem walls. Let me see if I could share with you a picture of Mishkinot am like cycling between all these pages because there's so much uh, nice stuff to share with you. Um, Let's see if we could show, here we go. Um, this is Mishkenot Shananim. Mishkenot Shananim, also known as Yemin Moshe, named after the person who built it. Its benefactor, uh, Sir Moses Montefiore, Sfardi Tahor, who we're going to encounter in a moment, one of the most instrumental figures, uh, not only in the establishment of the state of Israel, but believe it or not, I learned in the abolishing of slavery in the British Empire. The British Empire abolished slavery uh, long before, many decades before uh, the US abolished slavery. Uh, And part of the reason that they were able to do so was that the remuneration, the compensation for former slaveholders was uh, loaned to the British government by two Jewish individuals, uh, by the Rothschild family at, by Sir Edmund Rothschild and also by Sir Moses Montefiore, who was a very important banker, and they played a pivotal role in the abolishing of slavery in the British colonies. And this is the famous windmill. And I guess just to orient you, just at a site over here is the Inbal Hotel. So that is uh, that is Mishkenot Shainanim Yemin Moshe. That is um, that is uh, that is I guess one of the lasting. I mean, we see the we see the remnants. Of, of these great individuals and their contributions to the founding of the State of Israel um, already at this time in 1861. Let's move on to the next part of the history. And uh, I see that I'm already uh, biting off more than I can chew. Baruch Hashem, we have more time to uh, be able to learn this. I mean, this stuff is, uh, I think, so important. Uh, then the Chibat movement, the Chovavay movement the, movement, the rabbinic, um, rabbinic posturing for a natural return to the land of Israel through normal and natural political constructs comes with its most forceful uh, writer at the time, Ritzvihersh Kalischer, Hirsch Kalischer, uh, we're not gonna talk about it right now, we're gonna talk about it a little bit later, 1865, uh, Rev Cook is born in Griva in the Russian Empire. He's going to become really important. I'll just say one thing about Trishat Zion. there's so much to say about everything here. And Trischatsi uh, contains very interesting document in which Ratsvier's Kalisher implores um, implores the Jewish community to get the funds together to purchase Har Habayit from the Ottoman Caliphate in order to be able to bring the carbon Pesach the carbon Pesach on Har Habit. Uh, if you want to read a wonderful book about it, Professor Jody Myers at the University of California uh, wrote her doctoral dissertation on the attempt to restore sacrifice to the land of Israel in 1862. The Chovev Sion movement establishes its first Moshavot in Palestine, 1878. Petach Tikva is established, you could feel history sort of starting to speed up a little bit over here, and the ball is really rolling until we have the very first Aliyah. Baron Rothschild begins to buy land in Palestine, and the first aliyah begins. The first aliyah is also known as the agricultural aliyah. It lasts from 1881 to 1903. It's mostly Eastern European and Yemenite Jews. About twenty-five to 35,000 first come. Not all of them stay. It is extremely difficult. There is malaria. The land is not particularly arable. Uh, it is not favorable living conditions for settlement, especially for Eastern European Jews. We're not used to such things. But it is the, considered the first major attempt at the settlement of land of Israel by Jewish people. And then in 1896, a Austrian journalist by the name of Theodor or Benjamin Zev Herzl uh, rattled by the Dreyfus Affair, rattled by a series of pogroms the Kizhnev uh, and, and riots, not Kizhnev, uh, and riots in Eastern Europe and in France, publishes a book uh, arguing for the establishment of a Jewish state, Der Judenstaat, and establishes the first Zionist Congress in Basel in 1897. And it is explicitly, uh, we're not gonna to talk too much about Herzl right now, it is explicitly a uh, secular affair uh, you know, rabbis are not particularly welcome at, at this affair, but, uh, but later on, Rabbi Yaakov Reinus founds the Mizrahi faction in response to the cultural element of Zionism and essentially says like this, we've already been writing books since 1862, even beforehand, 18 years before Der Judenstadt, Rabbi Kiv Yosef Schlesinger writes a book which basically outlines what it might look like to have a state for the Jewish people in the land of Israel. He was not an Austrian journalist. He was, rather a, uh, he was rather a student of the Hassam Sofer. And he writes, you guys want to see something really, really cool? Can I, can I, show, you, can I show you guys something really cool? Check this out. So in my, in my um, I'm just going to try not to lose the thread of all the different screens I'm sharing with you because uh, there's so much cool stuff and I also don't want to give you a whiplash. But let me show you something amazing. This is a Sefer. Let me see if I can find the Sefer for you guys. There was a Sefer, this Rabbi Akiva Yosef Schlesinger, um, this Rabbi Akiva Yosef Schlesinger, he wrote a Sefer called Atara Liyoshna. Let me see if I can find it for you. And he was a student of the Chasm Sofer. He was a major rabbinic thinker and figure. And he, he writes a book basically 18 years before, here it is, ah, here we go. Give me one second, guys, because I promise you, you'll, uh, you'll appreciate this one. Let me see. Here it is. Here it is. Okay. I'm going to share my screen with you again. This is really cool. Okay. Here we go. This is the Sefer. It's called, it's published in Jerusalem in 1863. So that's uh, 18 years before the Judenstadt. It's called Hevra Machzire Atara LiYoshna in Kol It's written by Akiva Yosef Schlesinger. Here's the cool thing. It says over here it has a uh, note on the colophon, Tachas it's printed in Yerushalayim. Here just so that you see, Yerushalayim. Tachas Memshelis HaAdir The land of Israel and Jerusalem which is under the rulership of Sultan Sultan Ab, Abdil Aziz. Yer, Yer, Yerum HaShem Hodo Abdul Aziz Who's Abdul Aziz? Abdul Aziz is the 35th uh, Sultan I'm writing in Hebrew Sultan Abdulaziz Aziz is the 36th Caliph of the Ottoman Empire This is who he's referring to This is Sultan Abdulaziz. Aziz So that's who he's referring to over here And, um, and this, is, this is a book which also outlines what it would look like to have a Jewish state in the land of Israel I just thought that that was so cool um, and we have already this, this uh, clamoring for a religious element to be part of the Zionist Congress. So Rabbi Yaakov Rhinus, uh, a Lithuanian rabbi, a student of Volazhin, uh, a rabbi of, of serious learning. He founds Mizrahi a faction. Uh, he dies in 1915, and this is in the fifth Zionist Congress. This is the first element of religious Zionism that now has uh, a place at the table with secular Zionism. Many people are not happy with it because, you know, what are these, uh, what is the old guard doing here? Uh, but Rabbi Rhinus was... Um the person who corresponded with Herzl. In 1893, he already proposed with Roshmuel Mahalavur, another rabbi, a member of the, uh, the, uh, the Chovah Veitsion movement. Uh, they decided that they wanted to establish a settlement in Palestine that would synthesize Torah and labor, what they called a Merkaz Ruchani, a spiritual center, or in short, or a portmanteau of that, Mizrahi, Merkaz Ruchani. That's where the name comes from. Uh, the second aliyah, Begins in 1904, 1917, Lord Balfour writes the Balfour Declaration and um, you're going to see, uh, I see the questions starting to come in the chat. Very good, one moment. Let's just finish the timeline. Let's get the history a little bit out of the way. The Balfour Declaration 1917 outlining a British approval uh, for the mandate, for the notion, a notional approval for uh, Jewish dominance and governance, self-governance in the land of Israel. 1920, 1923, the beginning of the British Mandate, 1929, unfortunately, uh, riled at uh, something that can be taken out of the news nowadays that the Jews are seeking to take over the Temple Mount. Uh, the Arabs' riot, Hebron Massacre, uh, I believe 80-something uh, men, women, and children are, are brutally, brutally murdered um, by the Arab residents of Hebron, um, including... A uh, number of American Bachrim of the of the uh, Knesset Yisrael uh, Slabadka Yeshiva, which had a branch there, uh, when Ruvkuk, when Ruf Cook picked up the phone to hear about the Chevron uh, massacre, he heard about it on um, he heard about it on Shabbos. Uh, they say Ruvkuk fainted. And that was the beginning of the end. Rav Kook dies uh, less than six years later. Um, Rav Kook's uh, contemporaries biographers say that this was the beginning of Rav Kook's demise, uh, hearing what had happened. Uh, it was not just in Hebron, but it was in Jerusalem. It was in Spat. A terrible, terrible massacre that was, um, that was uh, at least initially, the Jews were not protected by the British uh, mandate uh, forces. and They only came in afterwards to stop Uh, the the rioting or to protect what was left and uh, all the way on the other side, not on the other side of the world, but uh, in Europe, the Nazi party wins 18.4% of the vote for the Reichstag. And in 1948, we have the declaration of the state of Israel. This is the, uh, this is, this is a broad sketch of the history of religious Zionism. And I want to maybe for the rest of the evening tonight, take a look at one of the first figures, one of the first important figures in religious Zionism. But first a question from one of our listeners. When does religious Zionism overtake secular Zionism as the most prominent type? Now, that's a big question. It's a rather loaded question. I, I, I think that we're gonna try and dress how religious Zionism came to be seen as a very dominant stream of Zionism the way it was expressed, which was not always so. Zionism, uh, at least political Zionism, was mostly a secular affair. Uh, The first first four Zionist Congresses did not even have a religious faction, uh, and it was sometimes avowedly secular. We have the new Hebraist uh, movement, and we have have an anti-religious, but uh, a Jewish flavor of the state in the beginning, um, and uh, nowadays we find a landscape where, for example, you know, something like, uh, I think something like 50% of the junior officers in, the, in Sahel and combat units are, are wearing goats, some crazy number like that. I, I would say let's table this question and try and arrive at it from a rather oblique way. You cannot point to a particular date when religious Zionism overtakes it, but what we can point to is the developing of a way of thinking which religious Zionism becomes uh, a crucial, an important foundational aspect of what we consider Zionism to be nowadays. It's an excellent question. Uh, I don't have too much time left, so let's take a look at our very first source. And uh, we're going to end with this tonight, even though um, I have about six more slides that I'd want to go through tonight, but I hope, I hope that that's okay uh, with you all. And the first source that we have uh, is going to be talking about Chovevei and the Shivat Tzion movement. We can divide like we saw the spectrum of approaches, we could divide religious Zionism into two camps. We have the passive messianic camp and we have the active messianic camp. The passive messianic camp, as we'll see, is one that believes that the job of Jews since the destruction of the temple, at least in the messianic sphere, is to sit tight and uh, to not rely and to certainly not partake on any political processes or any worldly natural processes, including war, including diplomacy, including uh, economic um, purchasing of land, anything like that, that is not part of the role of Jews nowadays. It is not something that we are meant to do. In fact, it is sinful to do so. Raval Kalai and the members of the Chavavaytzion movement represent the other end of thinking, which is that Zionism, religious Zionism, is about active messianism at its very core. Uh, here's a picture of Rav Al-Kalai. Um, I'll just show you very quickly. That picture is usually, it's usually, the picture usually just appears like this. It's really a picture of him and his wife, Esther, um, but we'll get back to that in a moment. And Rav kalai wrote a sefer, Goral Hashem, and Sefer Gorol Hashem, let's talk about Rav for a, for a second, he was a Spardic rabbi, um, he was a rabbi in Zemlin, which is a suburb of Belgrade in, in, uh, in Bosnia, and he, lived in, he was a rabbi in Sarajevo as well, and he died, he, made, he managed to make it to Yerushalayim, he died in Yerushalayim in 1878, and he corresponded extensively with one of the wealthiest Jews in the world at the time, who we've already mentioned, Sir Moses Montefiore. So we're just going to look at one last, uh, one last source over here. I'm already over time, and I apologize for that. But bear with me for a moment or two. I, just before this Sefer, Goral HaShem, it should be pointed out that, uh, that Rav Al-Kalai wrote a Sefer called Minchat Yehuda. Minchat Yehuda was a, an ode, a panegyric to two Jews, to Montefiore and also to uh, Cremieux. Cremieux was a Jew who was the Minister of Justice in the Second Republic of France, and who saved, both of them saved the Jews of Damascus from a blood libel. Some scholars actually assert that Herzl's grandfather, uh, one Simon Loeb Herzl, attended his synagogue in in Zemline and and actually was influenced deeply by the Zionist, proto-Zionist ideas that Ravalkali had. Uh, The Sefer Goral Hashem was published in Vienna in 1857, and it went so far as to suggest, in terms of practicalities, the formation of a joint stock company, uh, like a steamship or a railroad trust, to induce the Sultan to cede land in Eretz Yisrael to the Jews as a tributary possession. A secular Zionism owes a lot to Rabbi Yehuda al Kalai. For example, many of his principles and ideas that he argued for, like the revival of the Hebrew language or the recovery of the land of Israel, and an agricultural basis for sediment, formed some of the most important and basic tenets of secular Zionism. Let's take a look at his letter. So this is a letter from Moshe Montefiore that appears in the Haskamot, in the Approbations to the Sefer Goral LaShem, which is a small pamphlet uh, talking about practical ways in which religious Zionism can realize its goals. So he says, I have received this important clarion call and rejoiced in reading his delightful words regarding the redemption of Israel. I am prayerful, says Montefiore, that the Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of his nation, that they should return in full repentance, in order that all the nations know that the name of God is upon us to raise up our honor once again above and beyond. You could see over here, Poe London. It's written in London. And, um, Reish, Raish It's 1857. And this is Moses Montefiore. Anybody know what the Samachtet, if you could put it in the chat, what does Samachtet mean over here? Does anybody know? Samechtet means Sefardi Tahor, right? Sefardi Tahor, uh, this is the seal of Moses Montefiore with Mishkinot Shananim. This is Montefiore in his younger ages, and this is Montefiore at age 100. Montefiore uh, took a trip to Israel in 1827 and basically flipped out. He basically uh, became so religious, he started attending synagogue, he even built a shul which exists nowadays uh, on his country estate in the English countryside, Montefiore was one of the most important philanthropists and financial backers of the Shivat Sion movement. Ravi Yehud al wrote words such as this, and we'll end with this. Ha-aretz beit ha-gadol ha-kolel. Settlement to the land of Israel is the great hospital, the great medical clinic for the Jewish soul. Rucham beit Yisrael. All of the sufferings and all the difficulties and all of the afflictions of the house of Israel all of those, Avata Eretz Kivrat Avotenu, they can be ameliorated. They can be healed with love of God, love of our Torah, and love of the unity and brotherhood and love for the land of our ancestors, where they are buried. That's al Alkali and Sefer Menachem Zion. Alkali prevails upon Sir Moses Montefiore to give of his largesse to the settlement of the land of Israel, establishing, as we see in his seal over here, Mishkenot Shananim, the first Jewish settlement outside the walls of the old city. That's going to be all for tonight. I'm going to stop share for a moment. Um, That's going to be all for tonight. I'm three minutes over, but I want to thank